Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, to tell you something, people, you know, you know I pre-record and the show will air later this week and it will go to my website. But when the show airs, we will actually have a new president. And what's what's gonna make crazy about this is Facebook will go back to normal. It will go back to puppies and restaurants and reviews and all that stuff because I cannot take it. This weekend, because you know me, I, I do. I post a lot of jokes. This this past weekend, I posted a basic post. I said I'm very, I'm very proud that Joanne is helping out at the phone bank, but she's very mad because I'm helping out at a sperm bank. That was it, a joke. Well, someone sits there and gets on my wall, and he's one of her friends, and he starts putting those political stuff. And I wanted to say, a, this is my post. This is my wall. I don't even know you. Two. Two, this is a joke. Three, it has nothing to do with politics. So four, get off my freaking wall. But I didn't because Joanne was like, don't do that. So anyway, here's what we're going to do. We have a great show. Uh, I read some blurbs about this gentleman in my guest's book today. And uh, I'm going to tell you one thing, people. A chapter that he has lived would make all of us jealous. He is a rock star. He is an he's an icon. He's a legendary drummer. His name is Carmine Apice. How you doing, Carmine? I'm good, man. How you doing? Good. I was. Uh, I was. I, I, <laughs> I thought that was a funny joke. <laughs> I know. Well, the thing is, it was a joke. But this one guy gets on. I don't even know him, and sits there and starts like putting all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, it's not about politics. Everything's not about politics. You're in New York. Is 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 are people really talking about the election right now? Oh man. Well, you know, my my girlfriend is a radio talk show host that fills in at Fox News Radio. So. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's a news aficionado, and she, the news is always on, and we're always talking about it. And, and uh, we both voted by mail already. Okay, so and, it's good. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's a crazy, this is, a, this is the craziest election I've ever seen in my life. I know. It's like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 53 and it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't remember stuff like this, maybe because it wasn't as big social media, but it's, you know what, after tomorrow, it's all done and people will talk for a week and they'll forget about it. Yeah, not really. I think they're going to keep going. You know, no matter who wins, you know, if, if Hillary wins, they're going to, you know, people are gonna, that didn't want her to win are going to you know, moan about it. Trump is probably going to moan about it and going to call it rigged. <laughs> it's not going to end. It's just like, you know what this reminds me of? The OJ trial. Right. <laughs> yeah, because people were like... You know, it's yeah. like every day, every day you put the red TV on, ready to see, all right, what happened today? You know? <laughs> so I want to talk... It's funny. It's crazy. So I want, I, I want to talk about your career. When did, when did you know... Uh-huh. When did you know you wanted to start drumming? Were you born into wanting to drum? Was your family a musical family? I mean, what led to this? Well, I was always, I was always banging on the pots and pans, but I did have a cousin that started. Uh, he was the first drummer in the family. He had a drum set, a real drum set. So when we used to go to his house on, the, you know, on the holidays and just see, you know, he didn't live very far from us. Uh, we'd go over to his house. My, you know, my it was my. Uh, I guess my father's sister, you know, and uh, I go over there and we would, uh, you know, bang on the drums, you know, and I'd get more inspired when I hit the drums. So I did that all, you know, up until probably I was 10 or 11, you know, and then nothing serious. And then my my parents' uh, daughter was getting more serious, so they 
they got me a really cheap, horrible set of drums for fifty dollars. You know, at Sam Ash, the very first Sam Ash music store in Brooklyn. And then I, you know, I thought that was it, you know. And then uh, I put it in my cellar, and uh, um, you know, I had put it on a little some cinder blocks with an old tabletop, and it was like a little stage. And I used to go down there and play, you know, and just play. I don't know what I was doing. You know, but I just used to play, and every day I go down there, and I get a little better, a little better. And then uh, after a while of doing that, I I went for my first drum lesson. I didn't like it, so I didn't do it anymore. I took one lesson, and then uh, a couple of years later, I ran to some kid that was really good, and I asked him where he learned, and he gave me a lesson on uh, a number of a real good teacher, and I went to him, and that's where I really exploded as a player. You know. So, so who were some of your influences as you were growing, as you were learning? I know, I know Gene Krupa, you were a big fan of his, right? Well, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, Joe Morello, all the jazz guys, you know. But cause, and then there was some rock things, too. You know, when I was growing up, it was like Wipeout and Teen Beat by Sandy Nelson, you know. And that was all inspiring. Another one called uh, Topsy Part Two. this guy Cozy Cole. So all those together sort of inspired me. Plus, I listened to rock music, you know, I listened to, like, Little Richard, and he always had a great band with a kicking drummer. I saw the Alan Freed shows, you know, in, in uh, Brooklyn Paramount when I was a kid, <clears throat> and that inspired me, too, you know. So it's just a little bit of everything, but mostly the jazz drummers were the guys that I got my inspiration from, because they were really outgoingly great, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, you know. And then Gene Krupa's story came out the movie, and that was it for me. You know, I said, wow, that's what I want to do. So you want to do it. So now, now, what do you do? Do you sit there and you join a band? Do you find some kids to play? Because I read the blurb about your book that said you were, it says you were running in the streets of Brooklyn in gangs. And then how did you go from that to uh, joining a well, band? Well, it was, it was easy. I just, instead of doing that after school, I would go home and practice and, and play with bands and practice more. And, you know, when I started taking lessons, I really had something to, uh, every Saturday, I had, I had to, you know, meet the requirements of the next lesson, you know. So I would practice and practice until I got there. And then, uh, so what I wouldn't do would be going around, running around with these guys, you know, doing that. Now, especially the weekends were the times that all these guys, you know, with the gangs, all I used to mess around. You know, on the weekends, I started playing gigs. You know, I started making money on the weekends, playing weddings, playing parties, sweet 16 parties, and bar mitzvahs, and rock dances, and church dances, school dances. You know, I played whatever, whatever. I had a couple of different bands I, I was in, you know. And uh, so little by little, I got away from that street thing and got more into the music, you know. Did, did you ever think that it would be your whole life? I just got to tell you, uh, one of my listeners who's a friend on Facebook, his name's Nick Sanchez, was so excited you're on my show because you're his, like, rock idol. But uh, did you ever think you would be somebody's rock idol? Well, not really. I mean, you know, because back then there wasn't no such thing as a rock star. <laughs> you know? not, not in the way you think of a rock star, you know. It was rock and roll stars, you know, like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and all that. But, you know, I never, there was no real drum rock stars except for Sandy Nelson, you know. So I just wanted to be famous, a famous drummer. That's how I interpreted it. 
you know, my dream was to be a famous drummer or just to make a great living at playing drums, you know, like my drum teacher did. And that was my, my mentor. You know, it didn't really hit me about being a rock star or being a record recording star until I joined Vanilla Fudge, which at the time were called the Pigeons. You know, and that's why I joined them, because they had a different outlook. They wanted to try and make it in the record business, where before that I was, you know, I was totally happy with just playing in a band, cover bands, and doing R&B and soul, and, you know, because there was, you know, there was a future in that. You can go to Vegas, you can go to, you know, play anywhere and make decent money, make a living at it, you know? And, uh, but I always, when I was like 12, 13 years old, I practiced my autograph. Okay. I guess all all kids do that, you know? They practice their autographs when they got famous. And actually, once I made it with Vanilla Fudge, I used that autograph. (laughs) I've been using it ever since. What? How? How did you? How did you come upon Vanilla Fudge, and how did you change? Why did you go from well, the pigeons to Vanilla Fudge? Well, well, it was. I was playing in the clubs around New York. You know, it was a whole club scene in New York. Different things were going on. There was, you know, the R and B scene, which is you know like places like the Peppermint Lounge and the Headliner, and then there were like more hip kind of places like the Action House in Long Island. And the Chuchu Club in, in Jersey, where the Rascals used to play. And the Rascals were like the big deal coming out of New York at the time. And, uh, you know, we all looked like the Rascals. They were R&B-based kind of group. You know, they weren't what we called the Wonderbird group, sort of like the English invasion was all white, white stuff, you know. They, they were very white. The Rascals had a bit of soul to them, blue-eyed soul, you know. And, uh, and... I would play at the Chucha Club, and these two guys came up to me, and I said, uh, hey, we heard you had a, a good foot, and you're, you're really pretty technical of a drummer, and you sing. That's exactly what we're looking for, to, for this new direction of music we're trying to do, which is happening in Long Island. This group called The Vagrants, which I knew before, they, they played with me on a gig, and they looked like scruffy old guys that looking like the Rolling Stones. We were, we were very, very cool... Uh, three-piece suit, pinstripe suits and teased up hair and clean cut with ties R&B band, you know, with, with horns and all that. And the vagrants weren't. But the vagrants went on within the two-year period. They started drawing like uh, 2,000 people in, in places in Long Island without a hit record, you know. So these guys in the Pigeons wanted to do that kind of thing. They said they got the manager who owns the action, the, uh, action house but I didn't know at the time, I had a feeling those guys were connected to the Mafia. Okay. Because I had played the club uh, when they took it over. But meanwhile, you know, it's been a couple of years, and in those two years, the Vegas built it into a big rock club. So they were going to manage us and put us on a salary in order to do whatever it takes to, to get a producer and record records and, and get record deals and record and, and try and make it. And that was a whole different thing for me, and it was actually a life-changing decision for me, because I was well with my friends. I was making a hundred or two hundred dollars a weekend. You know, I was like you know, eighteen years old, nineteen years old, and I was doing good. You know, and uh, but then that sort of the whole idea of doing something different musically and doing something different to try and make it in the record business was very inviting. You know, and 
So I looked at the pros and the cons, and, you know, I figured, well, worst comes to worst, I could always go back and do what I'm doing. So let me try this. So they put us on like a $100 a week salary, and we spent all our time in Long Island at this guy's Silver Seals Club, and we organized the band, and we came up with songs and material, and but it was all cover material, but it was all rearranged. That was the fad in Long Island. And that fad was, uh, Vagrants had Leslie West in it. The Hassles had Billy Joel in it. A group called the Rich Kids had a big writer named Richard Super in it. You know, so, and they were all, you know, next generation rascals. But fortunately, we were the first ones to come out of that that made it internationally. And partly to do the fact that we had great voices, their four-part four harmony. Our lead singer, Mark Stein, was a tremendous voice, even still now, you know. And everybody was a virtuoso on the instruments, where the other groups, there were weaknesses. Only one guy could sing, or, you know, or you know, they weren't as strong as we were musically. So we, we came up and brought to popularity that whole span of rearranging songs and doing production numbers on it. So you start making it big. and Now, now when do you change your name from the Pigeons to the Vanilla Fudge? And, and well, Atlantic Records, yeah, yeah, Atlantic Records didn't like the word, the, the name Pigeons, so they wanted something better. So Vanilla Fudge came about, and somebody mentioned, or some girl mentioned, you guys like Vanilla Fudge, White Soul. And I said, oh, that's cool, we like that. So we used that, and we landed like it, and that was it. Both all fudge. Now, what was it like as you were gaining this momentum and becoming very popular and international? Because you know, as you said, you had left the bands that you know you were playing in hundred bucks, two hundred bucks a weekend. These guys had that hunger. You had the hunger. What was that like for someone at your age? Because you're still a young guy. Oh, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. I was 19 years old when we uh, had. I first hit record on the charts, you know. Um, that's how I was 20 years old, and uh, it, it was amazing, you know. All of a sudden, we got all this attention, and all the, all the girls, and the you know, fans, and the groupies, and all that. It was like, you know, mind, mind boggling, you know. I said, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to describe it, you know. I always get, it, you get this feeling, you get a feeling of you can't. A feeling of invincibility, like you're just sitting there because you're known where you're going. When you're on stage, you're a god. When you're off stage, you're treated probably like a god. You have groupies, which most yeah. people will never know what a groupie is. I mean, accountants don't know what yeah. groupies are unless they're very good accountants. But when do you, I mean, yeah. how do you handle that at a young age? Because, I mean, at 18, 19, 20, 21, most of us are just punks. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get into a, a like an egotistical thing, you know, where, you know, you get a bit egoed out, you know, but I mean, it was pretty wild. I remember flying in planes, you know, and like looking down at, at all the lights like at night and wow, all those people down there have heard our songs on the radio. It's weird, you know, and then you fly over to Europe and you get an amazing reaction there and you go to France and, you know, go to all these different places and and get like an amazing reaction and you're like, you know, you, you get spoiled a bit, you know? Now, now, when when did you decide to end Vanilla Fudge? How that, and was it a mutual decision or what happened? Well, 
was, uh, you know, we came out in 67. By 1969, the whole organ thing was sort of fading away. And, you know, we had Liz Zeppelin open up for us, and we had Jeff Beck who opened up for us and who became friends with us. You know, that seemed to be the direction of where music was going, more guitar-oriented stuff. So at that point, there's a group called Blind Faith came out. And there was Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker from The Cream, and TV Winwood from Traffic, and Rick Rich from, from uh, uh, a group called Family. And he was also in uh, Traffic. So it was like two Traffic and two Cream put together and came up with Blind Faith. So we had found out that Jeff Beck wanted to play with us, me and Tim. So we decided we wanted to go play with him too. So we, we were the ones that initiated the breakup to start a new super group, you know, with me, Jeff, Tim Bogart, and Rod Stewart. That was going to be the group. Now, were you were you a little nervous about that? Because I know you know you were coming from a popular group, or was it something that you were very excited to do? Very excited to do. We didn't know from, we didn't know anything about the business, you know. But we didn't realize we were taking the chance, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because even though it didn't work out with Rob and Jeff, then we put Cactus together, and Cactus did well too. Uh -huh. Now, now you mentioned uh, John Bonham. I read that that you actually you taught John Bonham and Fred Astaire drums. No. <laughs> that, that's what it says in your book. It's in your book bio. No, no. I didn't. I mean, there were some things that John Bonham got from me, but I didn't teach Fred Astaire. But indirectly, maybe I did, okay? Because uh, the way uh, John Bonham learned from me was by listening to records like I learned from Gene Cooper. I was just one of his idols. And he took some of my stuff and, and did them. Now, the blatantly my stuff, and yeah, I know it, and a lot of people now know it, you know, but, uh, so my, that's how, you know, I would, I per se, if you say I taught John Bonham, that's how, because I was one of, one of his idols, not his total idol, well, he took a lot of my style and, and did it and took it to his level, but a lot of the, you know, I recognize a lot of the riffs on the, on the very first album. You know, like the Dacio thing he did, he said he got from me. I don't know where, I didn't know where he got it. And then he pointed it out on one of my records. And he got it. And I did it once or twice, and he did it repetitively, which made it a lot more interesting. You know? And then Fred Astaire, uh, I gave Fred Astaire one of my rock drum books. Yeah, how did you come up writing that book? It was what, it was a realistic, uh, realistic rock drum method. What made you decide to write a book? And how many drummers do you actually think that you've influenced from that book? Uh, I don't know, but it's, it sold 400,000 units up to now. and still sells, you know, it still sells at four or five, 6,000 a year, you know. Because uh, like everything else, the internet has influenced everything, you know. The internet was, I, I mean, I was doing 10,000 books a year for a long, long time, you know. And then now we're down to 4,500, you know. But I, really, I went into a to a Sam Ash in Long Island. And we, were, we had a good connection with Sam Ash. You know, it's before Guitar Center and all that. And uh, I went in, you know, because I was a study drummer, I'd always go in and look at the drum books to see what, what's new. 
And I looked at one drum book, and you know, it's 1971 when we all look like hippies, you know, like like uh, long hair and beards and all that, and jeans and t-shirts. And I see a guy on the cover of a, of a book that says, Learn Rock Drums that look like Elvis Presley. You know, it was so played out looking. The way he was holding the sticks was played out. And the material was terrible. I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a drum book. I'm going to base it after a, one of the greatest uh, independence books called the Jim Chapin uh, Independence Book. It was very clearly written on three lines. It was easy to read. Anybody could read it. So I wrote it uh, based on that concept. And uh, I gave it to my lawyer, who at the time was a big-time big, big time lawyer. He met who's the attorney for Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, the Rascals, Herman's Hermits, the Yardbirds, Vanilla Fudge, I mean, everybody. So I gave it to him, and uh, he got me a book deal. You know, and in the book deal that he got, I owned the copyright. I don't even know what that meant back then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but it, you know, it worked in my favor because then, you know, when that deal was up, I went and got other deals and other deals. And, you know, I kept getting deals since, you know, since we got the book. I still own the copyright, you know. And uh, we printed it and it went and you know, started getting out there. And uh, I used to know Joe, Joe Morello, the great jazz drummer, and had books out. And my first year, I sold three or 4,000, you know. And he was flipping out because that is an unbelievable amount of books. I said, really? You know, I was used to selling, you know, four or five hundred thousand records. You know, so <laughs> three or four thousand books didn't sound like very much, you know. And uh, I remember when I was with Jeff Beck, Beck Bogan the piece, I had boxes of books that we used to sell at the gigs. That was before anybody really did merchandise, you know. And I, I did clinics, I did drum clinics, and I, we sold the books at drum clinics. And that's why I started doing drum clinics, because Ludwig Drum Company at the time said to me, if you want to sell your book, you go out and do drum clinics. It's like you go out and do records, you know, sell your records by touring, you sell your book by doing drum clinics. I said, if you do clinics, we'll buy a thousand books a year or more. And I said, okay. So I started doing drum clinics, which opened up a whole new part of my career, opened up an educational part I never had before. You know, and that, over the years, that made me a lot of money. I, was, I had a lot of success with it. And I can honestly say I was the first rock musician to ever do a clinic. Well, doing the clinics, did that lead? I know you did, you've did. you done a lot of uh, charity work with underprivileged people with, uh, with instruments and stuff like that. Did the clinics lead to that? Was that something that, as you were doing the clinics, you found you could help people? No, no. No, no, the clinics didn't lead to that. That... It came later. I, I, I think that well, we always did some charity shows here and there with Vanilla Fudge and Cactus and all that. But, you know, the, the, I didn't really, really never got involved in much of the charity work myself until I was with Rod Stewart and we co-wrote The Thing I'm Sexy. And we did a, a children, uh, what is it, uh, UNICEF Children's of the World uh, Benefit at the United Nations. And Rod had given all his royalties of Do You Think I'm Sexy at the time to UNICEF. Well, I couldn't afford to do that. You know, I wasn't Rod Stewart. They had 15 number ones, you know. Right. So what I did instead, I 
I did clinics all around the world, and I gave a portion of my clinic money to um, UNICEF. So I, uh, at one point, I gave UNICEF a check for $50,000, which I was very proud of. So I would, you know, most of the things I would do would be charity work for them, and then people would call me to do it for charity. Then I got involved in Little Kids Rock, and then I got involved in another one called Rocket now lately in uh, New Jersey. And like this weekend, I'm going to do uh, a vet charity. You know, so I, I, I've been involved in vet charities and, and, and Little Kids Rock and, you know, and charities for kids. How, how did your relationship start with Rod Stewart and what ended up with you guys writing together? Well, it started by uh, knowing him with Jeff Beckham, actually. And uh, because we had the same attorney, you know, we did a gig with a couple of gigs with them. But then uh, Rod and Ronnie Wood came down to one of the Vanilla Fudge recording sessions when they first started out. And they were both very shy at the time. So they totally changed, their personality totally changed, you know, but, uh, so I know them from that back then, and then in, in like 71, I think it was, uh, uh, Cactus and Rod Stewart and the Faces did a whole tour together, so we reconnected with them, got to know Rod and the Faces then, with Ronnie and everything, we, you know, we were pretty good friends back in the day, and then, um, that, you know, that was like, I don't know, maybe 60 shows we did with them, 40 shows, something like that. But uh, we became friends, and when we split to join Jeff Beck for the second time, it was going to happen this time, Rod told us not to do it because he thought that, you know, Jeff, it wouldn't last with Jeff, and he was right. And then uh, in 1976, I moved. To, I had moved to L.A., and... Uh, I was living in Los Feliz, and, and a friend, drummer friend of mine I met, I said, hey, it's Sammy Gennaro. How you doing, Sammy? Good. You know, I, hey, I said, what are you doing? Because I just came from auditioning for Rod Stewart. He says, I didn't get it, but maybe you should call him. I said, really? So he gave me a number of the guy, and the name, Pete Buckland was his name. Now, I knew Pete Buckland for years because he was on the road with the faces all those times. Well, we became good friends, so I called Pete up and I said, I heard you're looking for a drummer, and you didn't even call me. Kidding around, he said, oh, you're always busy. I said, man, I'm, I'm not busy now. I mean, I did have a record deal with K, with MCA with a group called KGB, but it, it was really falling apart. So I was ready to move on to something, and I wanted something that was already happening and that I didn't have to deal with, you know, any of it. So it pretty much worked out. Uh, and I ended up being with Rod for seven years. Now, how did the songwriting start? Things start with you too. Well, I mean, basically, Rod was a very fair, cool guy. You know, he was a good. He was a good leader. You know, he would say to everybody, "Hey, look, I need a song like so and so." Yeah. So, on the second album, he wanted a song like the song "Missing You" by the Rolling Stones. So I went home and I had a drum machine and I had a keyboard and I wrote these chord changes and a couple of melody ideas. And I took it to my buddy Frank, uh, Dwayne Hitching's house who had a studio. He was a keyboard player and we put them all down and we presented it to Rod and he loved it. Uh, that was it. And we arranged it and put it together, we recorded it. 
recorded a bunch of different times, different, a few different feels. But I always kept it to the song, and who the hell knew it was going to become Rod's biggest song he ever had in his life. Well, you wrote that, and then you also uh, co-wrote Young Turks. So that, that was a pretty big yeah, hit, Yeah, Young too. Turks, yeah. And that was me and Dwayne. That was me and Dwayne again. You know? And uh, Dwayne was always an electronic guy into new concepts. And when we did Young Turks and Tonight I'm Yours on that album, we, we used a drum machine, which was never used on a rocket record like that, you know? And uh, before that, it was always used like... Uh, like Find a Family Stone, just as a you know, a sound. It was never used to replace the drums, you know. Well, in those ones, we, we replaced the drums with it, and I basically overdubbed hi-hat and cymbals on it. You know, and it came up with a whole new sound. And, uh, and that record did really well, too. Now, you recently wrote your autobiography, Stick It, My Life is Sex, Drums, right. and Rock and Roll. Just, I want you to tell me some stories from that and tell me how you decided to write this book because you must have amazing stories and we could talk about your career. I want to hear some of your best stories, but what made you decide to write this book and at this point in your life, why did you decide to write it? I, I, wrote the, I started writing this book in 1982. I had the idea to write, you know, um, it was originally going to be called Richard, uh, name was... Uh, uh, what the hell I used to call it? Uh, the International Rock Guide to Hotel Wrecking. Okay. Yeah, that's what it was going to be called. And then uh, we changed it, and there was a lot of changes. But I started writing this in 1982 by putting stories down on tape when they were fresher in my mind from the 60s and 82 than they were like 10 years ago. You know, so... And then it's just a matter of writing it and forgetting about it and thinking about it and forgetting about it, you know, all through the years, because in my life, oh, the playing came first, you know, than writing a book. The playing came first, because that's what I was about. And finally, maybe 10 years ago, I started getting more serious about it. And uh, I had a manager at the time, and said he, might, he can get me a, a book deal. We ended up splitting up, so, but I did end up having... <clears throat> chapters written and some other chapters written, you know, little by little. By 2011, 2010, I had written a book with a whole bunch of people. What? Uh, anyway, my wife's trying to tell me something. I had book written um, with different people. You know, I paid some writers to make the English better. Even my girlfriend, Leslie Gold, the... Uh, She's called the Radio Chick out of New York, and she's a Harvard Business School graduate. And she rewrote, she rewrote some of the stories, because I'm from Brooklyn. I'm not really a, you know, a writer. The grammar and everything right. is, is, is bad. And, um, and then finally, um, I got a, a copy of what I thought was a book to VH1. They love the stories. They like the, the timeline of my stories. They like me as a personality. They hated the writing, so they hooked me up with this guy, Ian Giddens, that wrote the book for uh, Nikki Six. He's the guy that ended up writing the book with me. Originally, it was going to be on VH1 Books, and then after we finished the actual writing, which we started from scratch with interviews and stories and blah, 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 it took like 13 months before we had it done. By then, VH1 Books went out of business. So 
been like a the never-ending battle here, you know. Well, now we uh, we got another deal and another deal in England, and we released it. Now, what? How are people reacting to the book? Are they really digging it? Most people I run into, and most of the reviews I I see on Amazon have been five-star reviews. People really like, and every once in a while I run into a woman that or even once in a while a guy had thought these sex stories were too outrageous but you know I talked to my writer about that before we released it and uh, a woman who's uh, representing me in my book career um, also did Tommy James's book you know she she read it and she thought the book was great you know and I, I said well, even the even the sex stories so, yeah, I so said, this is exactly the way it was, a very honest account to what went on back in the days, which today, looking at it from 2016, you know, it's uh, politically not correct at all. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, I always think that it's you like know. the stories, I mean, you know, it's being a rock star now. I mean, obviously, you, have, you, haven't read, you haven't read the book yet. No, but I've, I've read blurbs about oh, yeah. it. Yeah. I want. I want to hear. Yeah, well, you should. You should get. You know, we should get you a book. I'll read it. Uh, I'd love to read it. Um, now, now, I, I read yeah. some of the blurbs. Now, you hung with Hendrix. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, it was just in those days of hanging out in New York. You know, before the, the pigeons. You know, everybody was running around playing. The Rascals, the Jimi Hendrix. Everybody was running around playing. You know, and uh, he was one of the guys playing the clubs. You know. And hung out with him. He was just like anybody else, trying to make it, trying to make a living. You know? Yeah. Now, what? So he was great. He's always been great. Did yeah. you? Did you? When you saw him, did you say, "Wow, this guy is going to be remembered forever"? No. Or? No. No. We just saw him out. Wow, he's wow, he's great. He's a great, great stage presence, and he didn't look like he looked. You know. When he came out of Jimi Hendrix, you know, he had a greased back, and he wore, you know, some musician kind of clothes, but it wasn't as outrageous as when he came out of Hendrix with the hair and the, the scarves and all that stuff. Now, from what I remember, but uh, we thought he was a great guitar player. But we had a guy named Ronnie Lee Jack that was very similar to Jimi Hendrix. You know. Now, how did you start your relationship with Ozzy? Well, actually, it was a shaky one. We played with Cactus and uh, Ozzy, and the opening act was Bruce Springsteen's band in Asbury Park. And we, we almost had a fist fight with him. Uh, somebody beat up one of our little roadies and stole our marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and me and Ozzy laughed about it. That's when I met him back then. You know, And then we, uh, we did shows together, and... Uh, over the years, kept running into, into each other, and you know that's just the way it is. You know. And now, it, you guys are blood brothers, or when did Sharon fire you, or how did you end up being in his band? I don't know. Well, yeah. Well, I, they called me. They were looking for me. They were looking for me, and uh, when they were looking for me, I called them up. I was in France, and I went to see them in London. And they, they said they wanted me to join the band. They got rid of Tommy Aldridge, and they wanted me to help finished the album like a 
like an associate producer and work with Ozzy and Tony Bongiovi and in New York and, and fix the drum sound and finish the album and blah, blah, blah. Be in a band. I said, great. But in the, in the end, I don't want to give the book away, but yeah, she fired me because uh, she said my name was too big. I should have my own band. So that was kind of weird. Yeah, that's, that's uh, it. It, the story. The story is a great story. Yeah, it really is. You know, some of the stuff in the story is unbelievable. You know? Now, how do you? I say, I say, you know, yeah, you, you really got to read it, and your your listeners should read it to really get everything out of all these stories. All the stories are great, but instead, stories are pretty wild. I, mean, I got stories with Buddy Rich. I got stories with Led Zeppelin. Rod and Jeff Beck and, and it goes on and on. Yeah. Now, what is uh, what was the, when you started the uh, Conquering Heroes? What, what what was that about? Oh, the guitar juice. Yeah. How, how did that happen? As, as a drummer, did yeah. you just want to? Find well, that you? was that, well, well, that was just the idea. You know, we're in the nineties. You know, all the all the grunge was happening, and and we were like dinosaurs, and you know, groups were breaking up, but. There was a label called Shrapnel that would give all these guitar players a record deal. You know, they would always have a record deal. And uh, I said, you know, I had a record deal in 1980. You know, I had a solo album out right after the Rod Band. I said, and I was trying to get one, you know, again. You know, so that was 82, and here it is, 92. Ten years later, I still haven't got one. So I said, you know... Maybe I got to do a guitar album to get a deal. I was kidding. I said, I'll call it Guitar Gods. A drummer doing a guitar album is really a crazy idea. And uh, I call it like an aha moment. And I went to bed that night and I started thinking, that's not a bad idea, you know? I can put these songs out, get my friends to play guitar on it, like, I'll ask some of my friends, like Brian May and Ted Nugent, and, you know. So then uh, I had done a couple of clinics, and uh, I, I saw Ted in California. I asked Ted if he'd play on it. He said, yeah, and I ran into Brian May, and he said he would play on it. And uh, I ran into the guys in King's X, and I knew them, and they said they would play on it. King's X was a hot item back in the mid-90s. So it took me two years to find the actual guy to put the deal together, you know? And once we did, we got a deal out of Japan. Exactly what I did. I got Brian May, Ted Nugent, the King's X guys on there first, and that drew in all the other guitar players. You know? I I got this guy named Kelly Keeling, who was a really great writer, singer, to help put the songs together and uh, I hired Tony Franklin who was my favorite bass player since I played with him in Blue Murder you know and we put all the tracks together and then I got all the different guitar players on it and it's released it and it did really well around the world in Japan it was it was fairly big in Japan I did really well in Europe I had only and I did promotion tours just like a regular you know band would do and I had uh you know, like it was really wild, like in the guitar magazine, there'll be, you know, like a Eddie Van Halen and 
you know, all these great guitar players. And I would be Carmine Apiece on guitar juice. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. Now, you're very... So, uh, yeah, the album sold. We ended up selling between all the guitar juice versions I did around the world. I probably sold 150,000 guitar juice albums. Yeah. Now, now that led to a huge popularity for you in Japan. Now, aren't, aren't you really big in Japan? Well... Yeah, I mean, during the 80s, 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I was really big in Japan. I haven't been there as much lately. You know, last time I was there, 2012, before that was 2006. Uh, so in the 90s, I had a band there called Pearl with Tony Franklin. It was very big. And, uh, you know, but I still have a fairly big name in Japan, I would think, you know. I just haven't been there as much as uh, I used to go. Because now the Japanese market is more domestic than it is international. I've been working more in Europe than I have in Japan. What gravitates you to work more in Europe? Is it just the popularity, or just do you like the, the? Just the way, just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Uh, I really, me, I, I. It's not up to me. I go play anywhere. It's up to the agents and the promoters. You know. So in Europe, there's more of a. Uh, loyal following that you know that um, you know music uh, aficionados kind of are there same in japan over here you know, you know since radio went away you know there's been a whole different music scene over here yeah you know? but europe never had radio so they're, they're still doing the same thing they've always done now, now, in your eyes, how has the music scene changed? I mean, I know well, I talked to a lot of people, and I know me, when I was growing up, you know, it was the fascination. We would ride our bike to buy an album, and you would buy that album because you worked your paper route, and you knew there had to be nine yeah. out of ten songs better be good because there was nothing worse than if you bought an album and two songs were good and eight sucked, you would never listen to that band again. And that was thing, and you opened it, yeah. and it was uh, the liner notes and the pictures, and it was... And when there was lyrics, yeah. you were like, holy shit, there's lyrics. I can sing along yeah, to this. It was a whole involvement, you know, in the music. It wasn't just you download it, you don't even know who's playing on it. That's why there's no guitar heroes anymore. Tell, name me a brand new guitar hero. In the last, what, yeah. five years? You can't, you're right. Yeah. Name me a brand new drummer. You can't. You know, Questlove from TV. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's what does yeah. what does it do? Like when when you know when you know you've been around for a long time, you've had this great success. Does it make you sad that when you see the the industry? I heard D. Snyder and Steve uh, Jones talking on Jonesy's Jukebox the other day, and they were talking about how you know there's it's just the music scene is so different that there's no bands that are gonna that are gonna really stand out like bands stood out to us as a no, musician who's no. been around what the, how does that make you feel well you know it makes me feel lucky that I made it when I did because I made it in the grandest era of music there ever was from the 60s 70s the 80s even the 80s just started getting a little bit weird you know some of the bands were awful you know and uh, but you know I never thought in my look, Motley Crue opened up for Ozzy I never thought that Motley Crue's songs would be being played on the radio 25 years down the line, okay? Back in 1980. Because really, you know, they, they were they were good. 
you know, but really compared to like some of the musicians, like, you know, the, the bands that came up in the 70s, like Clapton and the Zeppelin and Deep uh, Purple, you know, it goes on and on, you know. It's a different ball game, you know. It was like the MTV uh, thing. That whole MTV thing changed the business, you know. That was the last time the business changed. Then it wasn't about good musicianship anymore. It was about, you know, a hooky song that had uh, a good image on, on, on the video. You know, lots of women and, 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 you know, wild image with the band. The wilder the video, the better, you know, the, the bigger the song. You know, and then, you know, in the 2000s, the internet changed it again. Now, with them, there's, you know, you get all your videos, people make videos, you don't see them anywhere but on the internet. You know, record companies won't even buy a new band unless they have 500 following on the internet, 500,000, you know, views or 500,000 Facebook or, you know, it's totally crazy. I mean, it used to be me and you would drive along, people say to me, what do you do to listen to the music? I don't listen to much music, new music because I don't really have the time to sit around on a computer and find it. Right. You know, I used, I used to drive in my car, turn on the radio and hear new music, you know? Now, I... Even when you do serious, even when you do serious music, radio, they, they, you know, there's not a lot of new stuff on serious either. It's because I think, because, yeah, because I think people are just... They, everyone likes the old stuff. We we all remember it as yeah. we get older. We remember we it resonates with us. Now, now I saw on your website, yeah. which you have a very good website, people. It's uh, CarmineAPiece dot net. Did somebody own the dot com? No, I own dot net too. Okay. Uh, now, now I saw some Vanilla Fudge shows are coming up. Yeah. Now, what's that about, and how did that all come about? We've been doing Vanilla Fudge shows since 1999. And what made you start doing them? So, um, just got a call from uh, other guys in the band that they were going to go to Japan, and they were going. If I didn't want to do it, they were going to try and do it without me. I was in Japan when they called me, so I got involved in it, and we've been doing it ever since. Well, we've done a lot of different uh, versions of it with with uh, me and Tim Bogert and Vinny without Mark and then and then we did it without Mark and Vinny and then uh, then we got the original band back together in 2005 and Tim Bogert retired and ever since then we've been doing three out of four of us we did a new album last year and we just went to Sweden Rock Festival we're mixing an album for a 50th anniversary next year and uh, you know we did uh a lot of interesting stuff. We've been, we've been to Japan. We've been to Europe. We've been to uh, all over the states, to Canada. You know, so over the last few years, and now we're we're trying to uh, put a lot of cool stuff together for next year, which is 50th anniversary. That's awesome. You know, that's my 50th anniversary too. So I got a guy that's working on a documentary about me. You know, and. Uh, yeah, just having fun. I got some artwork coming out next year, and uh, that'll be you know, on my website when it when it's ready to come out. It's going to come out in January, probably probably around the Nam Show time. And then um, check out that coming out. I'm also 
trying to line up and align myself into doing uh, speaking gigs, like, you know, rock and roll history speaking gigs and also, like, motivational speaking. You know, about being, how to stay in your career and how to, you know, just uh, motivate people to, to keep moving ahead with a goal and, you know, all that stuff. Now, what kind of artwork are you going to have? And when did you start getting involved in artwork? Well, I've been doing some drum artwork for a friend of mine named Ed Hex for the last, I don't know, maybe six years. You know, we sold some, but this new artwork is a, it's a, it's totally different. It's like modern art. This company put me in a studio with a, with no lights, with glowing drumsticks, and I'll be twirling and playing. They have different camera exposures and different cameras everywhere, and then they put it all together, and then they develop this crazy art, like real modern art. You know, Carl Palmer's done it, and uh, you know, Terry Bozio's done it. So my, mine is coming out as the 50th anniversary editions, starting next uh, year. There's like 20 different pieces, and they're on canvas, all different size canvases. And uh, it's pretty wild. Some of the pieces are going to be in 3D. It comes with 3D glasses. See, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm legally blind to one yeah. eye, so I can't appreciate it. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Now, now you you also did a you did so, a, okay. Good. No, you you also recently did a book a, a, a book event in uh, in South Jersey. It's my neck and my woods where I grew up. What 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 do people see when you go to do a book event? I know you did it with David from the Hooters. What what do people what do they see when right. they, when you when you come well, over? Well, basically, you know, I tell stories from the book. I don't read. I tell stories from the book. I do Q and A, and then I sign the books to everybody that buys them. That particular event I'm going back for on December 1st to do it again. This time we're going to open, we're going to do an hour, hour and 15 minute master class first and then take an intermission and then do the book event right after that. So it'll be a whole evening of, uh, of stuff, you know. It'll be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. I'm going to miss I'm you. I'm doing another book event. Uh, I'm doing a book event on Thursday in, uh, in Phoenix at the... Uh, Zero Records in Phoenix. That's on the 10th of November. Just before I do that vet thing. And then uh, I have another book event December 4th. Uh, so I've done a good 20 of them so far this year. But we keep doing them because they're, you know, they're good to sell the book and keep the book alive. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun when I do them, actually. You also have an event coming up with Rudy Sarzo and Pat Travers. What event is that? Yeah, that's event uh, this weekend. It's a vet, it's a vet charity event, and it's at Alice Cooper's uh, Cooper Town. And we're going to be playing, you know, a little bit of Rudy stuff, my stuff, and Pat stuff. And then uh, the uh, organizer of the event apparently is a musician or something. And Pat, Pat played on his album, so we're going to do two songs of his as well. And uh, it should be fun. We have a rehearsal Friday and play on Saturday and then stay for an extra day and I'm working on also a live Sweden Rock Festival album of King Cobra how do you find all the hours in a day and how do you keep the energy up because you have so much stuff going on with the art and the speaking the motivational speaking and the recording 
I mean, what what keeps you sane? Do you have hobbies that sit there that when you just sit there and everything starts piling up, if you have deadlines or this, how do you blow no, up steam? No, my, my hobby is my music. That's my hobby. Playing drums has always been, you know, something you love. And uh, if I had another hobby, I like cars. You know, I've always screwed around with cars. And uh, I screw around with real estate. It's a business, but it's a, more of a hobby as well. You know, but uh, I don't know. You see, you know, the artwork was done a year and a half ago, and they've been developing it ever since they have been. So it only took me a couple of days of doing it. The rest is in their hands, you know. Uh, so that that's going to take work when it comes out. We're going to do art showings and, you know, and sort of like book events, but for the art. They will do a combination, book and art events, you know. Um but, you know, I mean, we got. I have one manager that manages Cactus and Vanilla Fudge. It makes it easy. I have another manager that manages uh, a thing with me and my brother Vinny called the Peace Brothers, and we're doing a Pledge Music campaign now that ends at the end of November, and then we're going to schedule a few weeks to do an album together once we get that all done. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, placing it, you know, placing things. Like right now... You know, we got these dates in November. Then December, we, we usually don't do any much work in December. And we got some dates in January. Then we got the NAM show. And then we got uh, me and Vinny are going to Australia for a week in February. So we know we know we're doing that already. So I'm not going to do anything else. So it's just a matter of timing it. You know, placing it here and then. Uh, April, we got put aside for Vanilla Fudge. We have a cruise with Vanilla Fudge. Plus the first week of March, you know, and then we have other days open for other things, you know. I wanna, it's just a matter of uh, placing it, you know. And also, I just want to ask you before. Yeah, I always like to play. I like to keep playing. You know, as long as I can physically keep playing, I'm going to keep playing. And, you know, I love playing. I love doing it. And uh, I say now I don't get paid for playing. I get play, paid for the traveling. Right. How many, how many shows... If you could figure it in your head, how many shows do you think you've done in your life? Forget it. I don't have a clue. <laughs> and I want to ask you one more thing, because uh, I, I, my friend Rich Redman got us in touch. How did you get involved with um, right. the Breast Cancer Stick It fundraiser? Well, I, um, I met her at the NAMM show uh, before my book was coming out. And she said, yeah, my... Things called Stick It for Breast Cancer. I said, it's funny enough, my book is called Stick It. You know, so I met her and we, I, I told her I would do the first first one a year ago. And we did. It wasn't that organized. It was a bit, you know, lack of people. You know, and uh, me and my brother did it and Matt Starr. And then this year my brother couldn't do it. I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'm always one for doing charities, you know, if I could do it, it's okay. You know, they pay my way there and they, you know, stay in a nice hotel and hang out. And this one was going to be some of my friends, you know, Mark Schillman. I just met Rich, you know, and Matt Starr was there again. And, you know, it, it was it was fun last year, so I went again this year. It was fun again this year. So I'll, I'll try and do it again next year, you know, before for work and I can't do it, you know. But uh, it's pretty much how it happened. And I like April. She's a 
next lady, she's a cancer survivor, God bless her. Really great that she's put together this foundation that she's she's actually doing well with it and uh, giving money to cancer. You know, to the disease ever since I was a kid, I've been hearing about cancer, 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 cancer all the time. You know, of course now one of my good friends, Alphonse Mouzon, has got this crazy kind of cancer. He's doing a GoFundMe campaign where he's almost raised enough money where he can go to Mexico and get the special treatment for it that they don't approve of over here. You know, so it's, it's crazy. But so, you know, I do what I can. You know, I donate some cancer uh, foundations also, you know. So, well, good, man. I want, to, I want to thank you for coming on because, I mean, you're a legend. I mean, I, I, mean, I hope you know that. I mean, it's someone you've, you've been around forever, and, and I know people don't like to well, hear well, that. Well, that's, that's what I've been told. Yeah. <laughs> so now, now your website, tell people all your, and where they can get your book. Tell all that information. Yeah. Well, yeah, com is my website, C-A-R-M-I-N-E-A-P-P-I-C-E.com. And you can buy the book there, autographed. We'll send it to you autographed. And uh, if you want to Twitter, is Carmine P at Carmine Peace One. Facebook is uh, Carmine Peace himself. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at Carmine Peace as well. Now, do you, do you tweet a lot, or you, do you, are you active on the Twitter? Uh, I'm, yeah, not, I'm not like Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are yeah, you? But you know, I. I I tweet out. So I don't. I don't tweet out like I'm getting up. I'm going to the bathroom now. Right. You know. <laughs> and so you know, I, I tweet out. You know, stuff that I put on the Facebook automatically goes to the tweet. Like today, I I, I put out a thing on Facebook on both my Facebooks. I went to the Twitter. Twitter. Uh, there's a thing called I'm not afraid. It's an it's a sort of an anti-terror uh, film. Just uh, with all these musicians and celebrities go, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, we're not afraid. You know, in other words, that we're still going on with our lives and our career. You know, we're not like letting these things get in our way, you know. Exactly. Well, you know, I want, I want... some people go, oh, oh, man, I'm not going to Europe no more. Not after what happened there, you know. I know, it's crazy. I mean, this is what we do, yeah. you know, so... So that, I just put that up, and I went on Twitter. Or I put up there was something that uh, Platinum Rock All Stars that we did two weeks ago, which has uh, other famous band members, and we did a show and two shows. We'll be doing more next year, and uh, I tweeted. I put that up, and it goes to the Twitter. You know, and I, you know, I, I look at it. There's just stuff that's interesting that that I can put up that people who are on it. It's still growing, you know. I don't have like a five million on it, you know. <laughs> exactly. I don't even know if I cracked. I think I just cracked fourteen thousand or something. That's you know? good. Well, you know, I, I've been doing it for two years, but, but but you know, it's just I look at it, and so a lot of my friends are on it. I get to see what they're doing too. Cool. Well, I, I want to thank you with Facebook. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for coming on. It was good to talk to you. I'm glad we got to talk to this. Um, so people follow sure. him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram and Words with Friend, Cooper Talk One. My website, coopertalk.net. I have a bunch of episodes, people. Email me, Cooper, coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, 
listen to Carmine at Peace, buy his book, and I'll talk to you guys next week.